Uh, I had mentioned um, the concept of Odom, uh, which I had mentioned in the last uh, couple of shurim, that we know that he is a Yisrael. And what that means simply is that he can do tikkun, which means that he has a soul which is connected to all the different worlds. And because of that, any, any, any of his acts can alter or change the energy of those worlds. In other words, he can actually, by his deeds, bring down the energy of the emanations, the ten spheres, and change the world. And that's really what a Yisrael is. Somebody who's, who's on this world that can actually change the physical world by actually influencing the spiritual. So we know that. Now we also know that from all the generations, from the ten generations until Noah, and then from Noah until the Dor HaFloga, which is the uh, Tower of Babel generation, that mankind sinned grievously, terribly. <clears throat> and uh, obviously nobody was doing Tikkun, that's obvious. So what the Roshim did was very interesting. What he did is the following. <clears throat> he had given mankind approximately 2,000 years to do it. First 10 generations, and then the second gen 10 generations. But mankind failed, you see. And I already spoke last time about the concept of root souls and so on. But in any case, so therefore he subjected them what's called the last chance, which the Bansham does, by the way. Whenever he's about to alter or create a game changer, he will always give a last chance. So he gave them a chance. <clears throat> what was that? He made Avram Avinu great, and he made Nimrod great. So here are two, two different people, and they were both leaders. However, each one was obviously very different. Nimrod was an individual that sought to rebel against God. And of course, Avram Avinu was to promote God. And the Bosham said, let's see who the people follow. And there was only one country in those days, Shinar, one people, one language. Now, if they follow Avram Avinu, then I will not disconnect them from the spheres, which I had mentioned last time. And as a result of that, that they could do also the Tikkun. So the ability to rectify creation will remain with all mankind. However, if they follow Nimrod and his plan, which is to rebel against me, then what I'm going to do is alter mankind and I'm going to disconnect them from the spheres, which I had mentioned last time, and therefore they will no longer, <clears throat> in many ways, be able to do that, you see. And as a result of that, you see, Really, as I mentioned, they have no purpose. But I will allow them to assist the Jews. And in that way, they will have merit. And that's exactly what he did. Now, what they did, of course, is they followed Nimrod in the Doha Floga. They began to build this tremendous tower in order to war with God. So what God did is he spread them 
all over by, by creating the concept called many languages. Because the way a nation operates, its entire culture is based on its language. And language is truly that which separates nations. So he separated the nations by virtue of separating or creating many different languages, you see. So as a result of that, not only that, but he separated them physically. All of this is obviously supernatural or miraculous. Now the question is, why did he do that? Because the problem is this. Because if he wants to give the ability to do tikkun, that means the whole job now becomes uh, a Jewish enterprise where the only ones that can do the tikkun are the Jews. Nations of the world can no longer do this. So why would he want to separate them? And the answer is because if the Jews are the only ones that can do the tikkun, then they will be insanely jealous. There will be a tremendous amount of anti-Semitism. So if God just keeps all the nations together, so you'll have two nations. One are the Jews, right? And the other one will be mankind, whatever they were before, you know, under whatever king. Until then it was Nimrod. Now what's the problem? Why can't there just be Abraham, Avram, and the other nation, which is, doesn't have the ability to do Tikkun, why not keep them together? And the answer is because Avram Avino is going to engender tremendous amount of hatred, really anti-Semitism, among that other nation. And therefore that nation is going to take out revenge or whatever, jealousy, or whatever causes anti-Semitism, and they will destroy the Jews. So therefore the only remedy is I must split the nations into 70 nations so like this, they can fight amongst themselves. You know, they can hate themselves and therefore fight, whatever, and leave Avroma Vino alone. So that is why when God decided to, to, to end the ability of the nation to do the Tikkun, he had to separate them to allow Avroma Vino and his descendants to do the Tikkun. And that's been going on for obviously 4,000 years. It's a long time. Now we see something therefore very important. We understand now the strategy that when the Jews have to do the tikkun, you, they can, there cannot be a Jew, Jews and one nation because the Jews won't survive. Too much hatred. So therefore they are split. However, when it comes into the Messianic era, we are very close to that, then that is no longer necessary. God would rather have all the nations together, you see, because then they can recognize as one God. <clears throat> and therefore what he will do is he will undo the forces that split the nations into 70, you see. So therefore we now understand why God put in the mind of mankind to create an organization <clears throat> called the United Nations. Because what the United Nations does 
is it unites all the nations together, you see, in one building, and each one has its own language interpreted for it when somebody gets up to speak. And, of course, what happens? As God said, <clears throat> that when the nations are united together, they will hate the Jew, and they will try to destroy the Jews, which is exactly what the United Nations has been doing for all the years. We know there's a double standard in the United Nations. That is, whatever is good for the nations is always bad for the Jews. And the idea is because concept called anti-Semitism. And that itself is a very interesting topic. Why is there anti-Semitism? But a great deal has to do with the difference between the soul of a Jew and the soul of a Goy, or non-Jew. And <clears throat> anti-Semitism not only comes from jealousy, because people, uh, you know, just they see the Jew in many ways as different, perhaps as successful or whatever, and of course there's a tremendous amount of jealousy. But the problem is the Jews also provide the nations with a tremendous amount of scapegoat, because the nations of the world, and predominantly, they're always doing evil. <clears throat> and as a result of that, they're always being, bringing punishment on themselves. And as a result of that, they look at the Jew, and they say, we don't understand. Why is he doing better than us? Therefore, the nations need a scapegoat. And the ones clearly who, who promotes all this are the leaders of these nations, right? Because... A great deal of the reason why the nations of the world are failures is because of the incredible evil of the leaders of these nations. When you take a look at the leaders of nations, it's unbelievable how evil people dominate these countries, these nations. They dominate, they are incompetent, they are greedy, they are evil, you see. And at most, maybe some of them are mediocre. And they're incredibly selfish, you see. And that's really the reason why nations fail. In fact, as an aside, I would say that the greatest curse that God could do to a nation is not to harm the nation, but to give it a leader that is evil, selfish, greedy, and so on. And so many of the nations of the world have this. So, of course, the leader has to divert the attention of his failure to lead from the nation. So what they do, of course, is they scapegoat the Jews. I mean, this has been going on for thousands of years. Where the Jews are always being scapegoated, you see. So for whatever reason, God decided that he has to separate the nations for the Jews to be able to do the tikkun the rectification. However, in the end, you know, it says in Tehillim, Perik Beis, second chapter, Loma Rokshu Amim, Yegurik, why why do the nations, why are they all excited against God and against His Messiah, His Anointed One? That tells you that at the end of time, the nations of the world will come together but they'll really come together to destroy the Jews or attempt, which, by the way, is going from the land of Mogoig. They'll really do that, right? 
because of the incredible anti-Semitism that they have. And they really can do it because now they're all united. You see, when they are united as one nation, they all have the same intent. And therefore they will war against the Mashiach, specifically Mashiach ben Yosef, you know, and of course ultimately against God. So the United Nations is the current events of what happened 4,000 years ago. God split them in order to allow, right, the Jews to do the Tikkun for 4,000 years. And in the end of time, it brings them together through the United Nations. And by the way, that's one of the ways we know that we are in the end of time. Because the only time God could ever bring the nations together, which will automatically create the climate of terrible anti-Semitism, is only at the end, you see. So that's an interesting indicator that this is really uh, what has to happen, which is the United Nations and so on. This is what we see. That's why, like I say, we see that we are really at the end. And like I say, almost every time you look at the UN, they're always passing resolutions to condemn the Jewish people. Even though it's obvious what's happening, of course, all of this will ultimately condemn the nations of the world. They have no idea, which I've explained many times, what the retribution will be when the judgment finally catches up. Now, God did have, and there's a medrash, God did have mercy on the goyim, those nations that he split, you see, and he always does that. He gives them a second chance. So the Chazal tells us that he gave them a second chance. It says, by Matan Torah, God went around to all the nations, means all the roots, root nations, and he asked them, do you want the Torah? In other words, he gave them a chance to reconnect with Tikkun. So therefore, what he would have done is reconnect all the souls of these 70 roots, which would have meant that all the nations would have been reconnected to the spheres. But somehow they all rejected. Now, we don't know what the historical event of that was. It could have been people in each nation, you know, that was alerting, uh, awakening their people to become ethical and moral, and everybody just rejected it, you know, and so on. Um, or it could be that God looked at the, uh, the spiritual capacity of all the nations and he saw <clears throat> that there was, it was so low that even if offered the ability to reconnect to the, to the Torah and the spheres and so on, they would refuse, you see. So we don't really know what the historical event was, but the Chazal tell us that there, there was a chance that they could have reconnected and been in, in, again involved in doing the Tikkun. But they all refused. And each one refused uh, for whatever reason. You know, for instance, it says, uh, Asaph asked, well, what's in the Torah? And God said, you shall not murder, kill. And they said, I'm sorry, because we live on that. And it says, Yishmael asked, well, what's in it? And God said, you should not steal. And Yishmael said, or the root of Yishmael said, well, I'm sorry, that's the way we make our living. Whatever. But each nation had a reason why they would not accept 
you see. But of course the Jews not only accepted, but they accepted out of incredible love, Ahava. <clears throat> In any case, <clears throat> therefore we see that God has now set up after 2,000 years, because Avram Avinu was 52 years old when the world turned 2,000. And now there's the setup where the ones who will do the Tikkun is Abraham Avram Avinu, the Hebrew. So it is a Hebrew enterprise, which is very, very obviously important and so on. <clears throat> so what is interesting is this allows us to understand in, in Lech Lecho, two very important ideas. Because remember, what this really is, is the beginning of the whole Tikkun process, where we finally have Avramavino, somebody that is now going to embark on doing the will of God, which is to rectify creation, you see. So therefore, at this point in time, there's certain what's called uh, beginnings that have to happen. <clears throat> One of them is where the Rabbanisham says to Avram Avinu, you know, Lech Lecho, I want you to go out, right? And you have to leave your family, you have to leave Choron, your family, and your land. And you have to go to the land <clears throat> that I will show you. Now what is interesting, why doesn't God show him? Why doesn't the Rabbanisham tell him, I want you to go to the land of Canaan, Canaan, or Eretz Yisrael, as we know it. Why didn't the Bashem do that? You know? <clears throat> now, we could say, well, because the Bashem wanted to give him extra reward. Because imagine the guy says, imagine this, Avram Avinu is 75 years old. And even in those days, 75 years old is an old man, right? And he's not wealthy. So the Bashem wants an old man who's not particularly wealthy to leave his family and go to a strange country. Look, even if he knew where he was going, it's a tremendous difficulty for this type of person to go. <clears throat> you see, tremendous difficulty. Imagine he doesn't even know where he's going, which is extremely unsettling. So we could say, well, maybe the Russian wanted to increase his reward, <clears throat> and therefore he will allow him. He said, well, you have to trust me. But the truth is, it's that, but there's something much greater. Because what the Rebbe said, listen, you have to understand something. The fundamental requirement of this job, which I'm giving you and your descendants, is you must trust me. This is the requirement. It's not only to give you more reward <clears throat> because you're trusting me, but this is the requirement. Why? Because a great deal of what you will go through, you won't know what's going on. You see, you're going to have to trust me in so many different ways. Because many times I'm going to come across in a way that you don't understand. So therefore, the capacity that I'd be talking which is trusting God, is critical to do the job of Tikkun, you see. And I'm going to begin that job by not telling you where you're going. 
In other words, it's almost like a list, a job description, that I'm not going to tell you where to go, not only to give you more reward, but what's more important <clears throat> is that you need to have trust. You have to have faith. You have to have trust, right? That I will not abandon you and so on. Because over the thousands of years that you and your descendants are going to have to do the tikkun, there's going to be a lot of strange things that happen that you will have no idea of what I'm doing. Therefore, this is a critical right, requirement. Then what happens? So we understand why you wouldn't tell him. Then what happens? So Avraham Avinu travels, right? He leaves Choram, right? And he goes to Canaan, where Eretz Israel. And this becomes the second lesson. Again, it's not just to give Avraham Avinu more reward because he trusts, but it's to tell Avraham Avinu the job requirement. He gets to Eretz Israel, Canaan, and it's one of the greatest famines. There were ten great famines that happened, and this that the world went through, and this is one of them. So could you imagine that God says, I will make you great, right? And I'm going to give you Eretz Israel, all that. Then he comes to a land that has an unbelievable famine. Imagine what a regular guy would have said. I don't believe this. This is a land that's flowing with milk and honey that God said I will get. This is terrible. So that's the first terrible question mark. The second thing is not only is the famine one of the worst of all, but he cannot even stay there. So then the question is, wait a minute. God said to the land, that I will show you. But this is the land that he wanted to show me. Yet I cannot even remain here. I have to leave or I'll starve to death. So that's the second question that Avraham Avinu had. Not only that, where does he go? He goes to Egypt. Now Egypt was a land that was filled with Zimo. Egypt, Zimo, Egypt is a land that is filled with immorality. That's what it was known for. So you take a man like Avraham Avinu, in order to save his life, where does he go? He goes to a land which is filled with zima, filled with hashkosa, corruption, and filled with, you know, all kinds of uh, whatever, sexual immoralities and so on. So that's the third thing. That you take a man like Avraham Avinu that's sort of supposed to worship God and winds up in Egypt? Then all of a sudden what happens, Right? He turns to Sarah, and he says, listen, I know you're, you know, you're quite beautiful. I want to know what's going to happen. These guys are incredibly immoral. They're checking out, you know, the, uh, what do you call it, the uh, people coming in, right? And they want to, they kill husbands to take their wives. Now, what they're going to do probably is he said they're going to kill him and take you for somebody else. You see? So, <clears throat> which is exactly what happens. So could you imagine that Avraham Avinu's wife is kidnapped and she's taken away? So now not only does he not have a family, he no longer has a wife. But that's not even the bad part. The bad part is that 
they take his wife to make her a concubine of Pharaoh. Now, the rule is, a lot of people don't realize, that when a Pharaoh dies, nobody can marry his widow. Nobody. Because it's a bizillion, right? It is a tremendous uh, disgrace to the honor of the Pharaoh or the king or whatever, that his wife should now go to a commoner. Which means that Sarah can never come back to Avram Avinu. She's not allowed. So not only is she kidnapped, he cannot even take her back because she cannot marry or remarry or go back to Avram Avinu. Can't happen. So imagine, here's a man, Avram Avinu. He's an old man. He's not wealthy, right? He has no family. And he's sitting somewhere in the middle of Egypt, right? In some motel, so to speak. And he's finished. Could you imagine? And this was after the promise by God that he's going to make him a great nation and so on. Why did the Bershom do that? Because the Bershom was again teaching him the job requirement. You should know one thing. You know, a guy could say, well, the Bershom told me that I have to, you know, do his will and become spiritual and all that. And boy, it's going to be a great life. What the Bershom was telling him you think this is going to be a bed of roses? No. There will come a time that you will be exposed to terrible, terrible uh, events that will make no sense to you, you see. So I- instead of having a great time doing the task of the king, you will be subjected to terrible you know, uh, occurrences that will tremendously try or test your resolve to continue. That's what the Mershon was telling him. You have to be warned that the job that I give you is an extremely difficult job. Why? <clears throat> because it's going to look like I've abandoned you. That's what it's going to look like. And you should know, you must trust me. You must have me talk Because from this, came something which is very interesting. Who is the one who made Avram Avinu rich? It was Pharaoh. Because when he realized who he was, Avram, a tremendous holy man, prophet, you see, because God afflicted the entire house with a terrible disease. You see, everybody got it. And he knew it was because of Avram. So he realized who Avram Avinu so it says that, you know, he told Avram Avinu, you must leave, obviously. A person of your greatness and spirituality is not what we want, too dangerous, and so on. But I will give you a tremendous amount of wealth, which is what he did. So it comes out very interesting <clears throat> that Durvanshim showed him that not only have I not abandoned you in the sense that now everything has been restored to you, you see, but the, the whole concept, the hardship itself is what made you wealthy. <clears throat> In other words, from the very darkness that you experienced, you have now become wealthy, you see. And everybody then around him realized what Avram Avinu was, <clears throat> and many kings, you know, of Canaan envied him. We see that from Avimelech, 
and so on. And he became very great among the nations. And what did it? The incident in Egypt. Uh, so he realized that the Barsham, you can't predict. You see, he can make you wealthy and incredibly successful outright. Or he can do it by lowering you to the lowest level where it looks like everything is dark, bleak, hopeless. And from that itself will come the Yeshua, you see. And that's what Avraham Avinu realized. <clears throat> but all of this is a lesson to tell Avraham Avinu what the job requirement. And that is a very important idea. <clears throat> now, another idea which is very important, you see, is that <clears throat> Avraham Avinu you know, he made, he, the Bershom made a covenant with him. It's called the Brisbane Absurum. You see, it's a covenant between the pieces. That's where they used to make agreements in those days. Cut an animal in half, and both parties would walk through it. <clears throat> so it says, therefore, so when he did it with Avram Avinu, what he did with Avram is that he made an agreement with Avram. <clears throat> and this is the Brisbane Absurum the covenant or the agreement between the pieces, where he now gave the ability of Tikkun, he gave it only to Avram Avinu, and he took it away from all the Goyim. <clears throat> you see? So this was the official legal event that creates the concept of Jews to do the Tikkun. Now, I had mentioned previously that Avram Avinu was one of the 70 Shrasham, he was one of the 70, but he would only be in charge of 170th of the Tikkun. And now the Barsham made him in charge of all 70 parts, all of it. Because he now took over, as I mentioned last week, of the 70 different connections that he has toward the 70 different parts of the spheres. And he took over all of it, <clears throat> you see. And by the way, that's why it says, Ein Pon Le Torah, that there are 70 parts of the Torah, because each sphere is able to enlighten you on one aspect of the Torah. And since there are 70 different parts that we are connected to, uh, we have Ein Ponim, we have 70 different facets of the Torah. That is also why there are 70 languages. Because each church in the Shema, you see, has its own way of communicating with others. So those are the 70 languages. Uh, that is also why there are 70 members of the Sanhedrin. Because each member of the Sanhedrin was able to perceive what the Torah says. And he was able to perceive it from his root that he is connected to one part of the spheres, you see. That's where the number 70 always comes from. And that is also why uh, when the Jews went to Egypt, they were now going to take over, as I will mention in a minute. That's why 70 Jews, if you count all the people, there are 70 Jews that entered Egypt. And Yocheved was the last one to be born, and she was born right between the walls of Egypt. So before the Jews had entered Egypt, 
there were now 70 souls, and each one took over one of the root souls in the sense of one of the spheres that they are connected to. And that's the whole concept of the 70, by the way. You see. Now, the Rabbanisham told Avram Avinu that you have to understand that your job is not just to do the tikkun, which means to allow the energy or the light, the holiness of the spheres to come down to the universe and, uh, you know, purify materiality or physicality and turn it into a spiritual universe, which is really what happens. You have to undo all the evil that was done for 2,000 years. In other words, you have to take out the power of the Sultan. Remember, the Sultan takes its power from the spheres that the, that the, uh, uh, the Jews give when they sin. When the Jews sin, then the Sultan is able to take from their energy that they would have brought down, and he takes it himself from those spheres, those 70, and they're called the sparks of holiness, you see. So the Barsham told Avram Avinu that your job is not just to continue this rectification process, but you have to undo all the evil of the previous nation, because they were all connected to the 70 roots, so by sinning, they empowered the Sultan to take, to be unique, to nourish from the, the 70 different parts of the spheres. You've got to bring it back, you see? And that's why he told Avram Avino, you know, they, your descendants, must go into a land, you see, that must remain righteous. And thereby, they will take back all those sparks of holiness that was given to it by the nations of the world, those 70 root souls, you see, and they have to take it back. That's what he told Avram Avinu, and that's why it says, your children will be in a country for 400 years, you see, and they will uh, take back, and they will, and these Jews, or your descendants, right, will be Gerim. means they have to remain aliens in that long land, which I will decide, which of course came out to be Egypt. And they have to remain righteous, thereby diminishing all the energy of the Sutton. They have to take it back out of the Satanic hands and put it into the hands of Kedusha. Of holiness, you see, and that's what they have to do. But what's interesting is Avram Avinu realized. He said, "Wait a minute." He said, "How do I know that I will be able to do the tikkun in my descendants? Because what will happen is that they will sin, and just like you destroy the generation of the Mabel, the flood, you'll destroy my children, and try to pick out some other nation." So the Barsham said, no, I am going to guarantee, that's called the Anhogas HaYichud, which I once explained, I am going to guarantee, right, that your, your nation, right, that they will do the Tikkun. And the way they will do the Tikkun, right, is not merely by remaining aliens, 
I mean, that's what they should do. And therefore, by remaining righteous in Egypt, which was the land that came to be, that was the land they had to go into, you see. So they will do the uh, uh, remain uh, aliens. But if not, vavodom, then the Egyptians would, will enslave them. And if the nation, the Jews, further deteriorate, right, and become bad, sin, then then the Egyptians will afflict them. So God was saying that I'm going to allow them really basically two ways, actually there's three, to do the tikkun. Either you are righteous and you do the tikkun then, which means you take out all those sparks of holiness from the sudden, or you have to suffer. You have to suffer and your pain will remove the sparks of holiness from the sudden. So in that way, God guaranteed Avraham Avinu that the Jews will do the tikkun no matter what. And that is why God went through the pieces. Avraham Avinu fell into a sleep and he dreamt that God went through the pieces in two symbols, one as a flame of fire or, and also I should say, as a smoking furnace, Tana Oshan. And Rashi says <coughs> that the smoking furnace was really Gehenim. That is a symbol of Gehenim. Why did God go through those pieces in the prophetic vision showed to Avraham Avinu in two ways, in two forms, to tell him that either I will come as, as a, uh, a torch of light in response to the fact that the Jews have remained alien and have not assimilated into Egypt, right? Which is the ultimate land I will bring them to. And therefore, since they are being righteous, I will appear to them as a light, right? Or if they sin, then I will appear to them as a smoking furnace, which is a symbol of Gehenna. Suffering. So through the suffering, they will have done the Tikkun. And after both of these things, either one, the Jews will have rectified the sin of 2,000 years of sinning. Not the Jews, rectified that the non-Jews, now they are non-Jews, what they have done. So they will have removed all the power of the Sultan and collapsed the whole satanic empire you see, and collapse his power, and his power is called Zoyamah. They will collapse that, and that will, be, will begin what's called the Zikuch. Zikuch is to purify the physical universe. So therefore, the Jews had to go to Egypt, you see, because they had to remove all the sparks of holiness that the Sultan has been able to take or you see, because of the sins of all the 70 roots, 70 root nations. That's why they went to Egypt. That was part of their avoid. That was part of their process of doing tikkun. Uh, the only thing is, in response to Avram's question, how do I know that uh, you won't destroy them if they sin? They don't remain righteous and they assimilate. So that God said to him, that I'm going to go through these pieces 
in two forms, depending on the acts. In other words, I will appear to the Jews in one of two forms, depending on how they do the rectification. So if they rectify it with righteousness by remaining aliens, then I will appear to them as a tremendous torch of light. If, however, they assimilate, then I will appear to them as a smoking furnace, which is Gehenim, which means that they will suffer. But either way, they will do the Tikkun. And that is exactly what happened. And that is why when it says, when God said, uh, and they will, um, they will leave, it says, and after they will leave with uh, great possessions, so the gematria of they will leave with great possessions, is the same gematria as Nitzoytze Kedusha, sparks of holiness. Because that's exactly what they, the spiritual uh, uh, things that they left with. Because that was the whole reason why they entered, you see. <clears throat> so this was the beginning, really. It's called the intro. It's like when you take a job on. You sit down with your employer, and he spells out all the conditions, you see. So the first condition that he spells out, right, is that I'm not telling you, you know, what the ultimate reward is. You need to trust me. The second job requirement is that, listen, it's going to be a very difficult trip. This is not going to be roses, you should know. So you have to trust me that even though you're going to see things that you can't believe that I am doing, don't worry. You have to trust me, have faith in me, and I will not abandon you, you see. So those are two very important ideas that we don't know really what the reward is. We don't know what Olam Haba is. That's the land. It's not just Canaan, but Olam Haba is the land really that we are going to ultimately wind up, you see. In Oilam Haba, we don't know what that is, but we have to trust God that it's going to be something which is beyond comprehension. And the second thing is that this journey, or this task, is not simple. It's going to be filled with tremendous amount of darkness, contradictions, suffering, you see, of along the way. And we have to maintain our that's Avraham Avinu's intro to the whole job of Tikkun. And the main idea also is that God said, no matter what, they will do the Tikkun. And that, you should know, really, in the end, is why the Jews are the only nation of antiquity to survive. All nations of antiquity are gone. They're all gone. If you want to look at the ancient Assyrians or Babylonians, then you have to dig them up because they're all dead. You see, you've got to dig them up. The only nation of antiquity that's left, <clears throat> and it's the only one, so it violates the rule that we're the only ones that's left, everybody else is gone, are the Jewish people. And the reason for that, you see, is because we are the only ones that can do the tikkun. That's number one. And the second idea is that we are guaranteed to do the Tikkun, which is the version told of.
And that is uh, the whole concept of the, uh, the, the smoking furnace that goes through the pieces. So that, that whole concept between the end of Noach and Lech Lecho is critical because it is really the requirements to do the tikkun of what the Jews have to have. The Jewish people, no matter what they go through, must remember you must believe in God, faith, and you must trust in God that what he said he will do, he will do, you see, and that he will get us to do the tikkun, and ultimately all of us will be in Oilam Habo. In fact, all of us will even be in the Yemaisa Mashiach, which is incredible thing to look forward to. So these are the ideas that I wanted to share with you, you know, in terms of, uh, you know, Pashas Noach and Lech Lecho, you know, because in many ways they are, they are fundamental and they are pivotal in terms of the entire task of what we have to do. Any questions? Yes. Go ahead. So, um, okay. If each one of us are connected to a, a root sefira, yes, and our job is to um, take back the energy of that sefira, then that's technically our tikkun in life. Yes, that's your mission. That's what you mean. Yes, that's so your mission. So if we found out what root sefira we were connected to, then we would know what our path is? Yes. Now, now there's so no mekubalim that ever, um, like, did, like, listening well, on this, how, how, like, oh, I realized that this person, his mission was this, so maybe he's connected to this sefira. Like, there's no learnings for us to, to dig deeper into this? Well, in the olden days... You were lucky, because you would walk over to the coin goddle and ask him, what's your mission? And he would look at his breastplate, you know, the choshen, right? And he would take a look at which stones lit up, because it was all miracles. And from that, he could actually tell you what your job was. Or you could go over to the local navi. I hate to use the word local, but, you know, to the navi in those days. For instance, you could walk over to you know, let's say, Yimio, and say, you know, what am I supposed to be doing here? And he would tell you. He would have a nevuah. He would make the request, which he can do, and God would answer him. The problem all is that all of that ended a long time ago. You know, now, so today, the only way a person can do that, I mean, there are several ways. One is Gilelio, where Elio can answer mm -hmm. him. A person, uh, Elio appears to certain tzaddikim. So that tzaddik can ask Elio. Or another way is where the tzaddik himself has Ruch HaKodesh. A really uh, tremendous Ruch HaKodesh. And he could know what your taklitz is. You see? Now there were some people like the Ari who would know what your, ta what your tafkit is. You know, what your purpose is. He could look at your hands or he could look at your forehead and he could read it. 
because all of that is really on display <clears throat> by the creases and folds and so on. But these people are gone. Who can do that today? Unknown. But the main thing that you have to remember is that God will guide you to do it. That if this is not meant to be, it will not happen. You know, every all of us have, we had certain things we wanted, uh, we tried, never happened. Why? Because that's not our taklas. You know what I'm saying? <clears throat> you know, it says in Pirkei Ovis, very important idea, right? It says, Ezehu, different ones and so on, you know. It says, Ezehu Oshir, who is considered rich, right? Sumer Bechelkoi, somebody who is happy with his lot, with his portion, you know. Of course, that's, how do we understand that? <clears throat> you know, most people will tell you I'm much happier with the other guy's lot, the other guy's portion, you know. <clears throat> But the interesting thing about it, what that really means, is that your portion, whatever it is, is exactly what you need to fulfill your mission. Not his, yours. So you must be given, or else your life would be meaningless. You must be given the complete wherewithal, everything, in order for you to do your mission. So therefore, if that's the case, uh, and I have everything I need for my mission, if I do my mission, then I've completed my tikkun. And that's the greatest of all wealth. Right? That's wealth. To do when you do your tikkun and not somebody else's tikkun. When a person does his tikkun, that's his oilam habo. He gets it through the tikkun that was assigned to him, you see. Uh, so that's what it means. Who is a wealthy person? In other words, who is a person that's going to have everything he needs, needs or wants? The answer is somebody who's happy with his lot. Why? Because his lot is the exact requirements to provide him the ability to do his tikkun, his job. <clears throat> you see? And you don't need anybody else's job. So if you need to be rich, then you will be rich. Not because you earned it through some type of reward. Because wealth is what you need to do your tikkun. Somebody else, maybe his tikkun is something else. You know, uh, which is not so good. But that's what he needs to do his tikkun. And in the next world, in Oilam Habo, that is the greatest wealth. Because all of your energy, all of your kiddusha, all of your dvekas to God is exactly through the sphera that was yours to do. You see? And that is the greatest wealth. To have your sphera. You see? So obviously if that's what it says in Pirkei Ovis, who is, you know, who is happy, Sameach Bechelko, he... Uh, he's happy in his wealth, in his portion. Uh, so obviously, the God has to give you your portion. Or else, now God knows that you don't know what your portion is. So therefore, basically, he has to give it to you. You just merely have to decide different things. So if something is within your portion, 
It will happen. It will come to you. If something is not, then it will not come to you. Because if it's not your portion, then it, doesn't, it shouldn't come to you. Because if it does, then it could mislead you, you see, and cause you to make a mistake. So what you have to do is you have to realize that everything has exact precision. You have exactly what you need to, in order to do your job, in order to connect, to, to allow uh, the flow of your particular sphere. And that itself is the greatest possible situation you could ever be in. You see? So the 70, if there's only 70 parts that need to be, um, that, the, that we need to get the energy back from, then how, how does it, 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 it subdivides and subdivides that each one of us are one, uh, 170th of the 70s? Like how does it? Yes, because like I uh, mentioned, there are 10 spheres. Each of these 10 have 10. So those are the 10 subspheres, right? Which comes out to be the first layer is 10. The second layer is 100 because each sphere has 10. Right? But then each one of those spheres have 10, right? So it's 10 times 100, which is 1,000. And it, 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 it uh, goes down, progresses down infinitely. You are somewhere in one sphere and somewhere down the ladder, you know, down the levels. There's one sphere that is dedicated to you. And that's your job. And if you do that job, then that's all you need. Because that is the window to God. You see? So that's how it works. So when we say that the tikkun is almost done, that means that most, most, of, the, the pe- most of the people did their tikkun and gave back the satan uh, energy back to Amisael. But exactly. Now all of us that are living, don't you? Didn't you say that right before Mashiach comes, all the Jewish souls come down to the earth? So then, what? Ha, what if if most of it's done already? Then what are the people that are on the earth that did their tikkun already? But the but the neshama have to come down. Like, what are they doing? Well, they will come back in Tchis Hamesim. Oh. T- Got it. So everyone that's alive right now still has to do a tikkun. Yes. Yes. But we're getting closer and closer to the end. That's why it says that, you know, uh, the Mashiach doesn't come until all the Nishamas in a place called Guf come down. It means every soul that will, is destined to be in a body must be born to do his tikkun. Or else the tikkun is incomplete, you see. So everybody has to do their tikkun. And ultimately, everybody will have, uh, you know, tchisamesim. may take a while, as I said, but ultimately everybody gets up to be in the messianic era. Some people will be in the beginning. They're lucky because they are more spiritual. And some people will have to wait. Some people have to wait decades until they get up. 
but everybody will be up by the year 6,000, you see, to experience this Messianic era. But I don't understand why Hashem doesn't do something that we can know what our tikkun is. How we I would imagine... I, I, because I would imagine that what the Bershom needs every Jew to do now is bitochen. For some reason, that is the greatest chus that we have now. You have to have faith. So if everybody knew what to do, you wouldn't need bitochen. You would just do it. You see. But look, you remember by Kriyas Yamsuf, you know, Moshe Rabbeinu said, go forward into the sea. Well, guess what? Nobody wanted to do that. You're going to drown. Finally, it took one person, Nachshrein ben Aminodov. He had to display bitochen. You see? It's an interesting concept. In some way, you have to display some type of trust in God. And that merit opens up, that's the key to open up the door. And even by Kriyas Yamsuf, when everybody knew that they're going to get away from Egypt, so why do you need to be talking then? You know? I mean, the mere fact that millions of people left Egypt into a wilderness. There's no food there. They didn't know anything about the mun or how they would drink. Think about that. In fact, it says that in the Novi. You know, that's a tremendous bitochen that the Jews had, even to leave Egypt, you see. And it could be that was the problem with the people who died, the 80% who died. Because they said, that, fine, but we can't go into the wilderness. There's, there's nothing there. So they did not have to be talking. I mean, they believed in God. That wasn't the problem. They all witnessed all the miracles, you see, but they didn't have to be talking, or they lacked enough of it, where God said, I'm sorry, you must leave Egypt. Even though they knew that they don't have to worry about Egypt anymore, Egypt is not going to enslave them anymore. They were all free, but God said, that's not enough. I need to change your life. I need to give you the Torah. You see? So it's interesting that Nachshem ben Ani Aminodov had to display Bitochen. And then the sea split. You see? So even when we know that the redemption is about to happen, you have to trust. And trusting means we do not know what's going to happen. We don't know what our mission is. We have to trust that we are being led in the right direction. That's why Bitochen is critical for the Geula. You see? And that's why we don't really know what we have to do. Just trust that God is in charge and that God is taking care of all your needs. And He's not going to abandon you just like He didn't abandon Avram Avinu. And not only that, it was because of the darkness of Avram Avinu that's how He became so wealthy and he became so famous. You know? So Bitochen is a very important point. Does Bitochen make you wake up earlier um, after Tehiyat Yes. It 
does. Yes. It's a very powerful mitzvah. Very powerful. <clears throat> you know. So, we'll so talk about say, it. Yeah. You would say that spreading bitachon is, um, is just as important <laughs> as, as you say, is, as spreading the Lashon Hadas? The halachot of it and all that? I, I hate to use the word just as. Uh, but it's, there's no question about that. Each one does its own thing. You know, I mean, well, I'll talk about it eventually, but Bittachon was a major element in the Akedah. How the guy slit his son's throat? Because he had Bittachon, that what he was doing made sense on some level. And God needed him to do that, which I, I will explain. Question. I have a question. Yeah. I mean, if Hashem spoke to you, if Hashem spoke to you, of course you're going to listen. Yeah. Do you know what I'm saying? Like, if Hashem told me to do X, Y, Z, of course I'm going to do it. So so how does that display so much bitachon? If, if, if Hashem's talking to me, I'm going to do it. <clears throat> How did it... Uh, think about this. Why did the Jews do the golden calf if they all heard the voice of God? It was the Arab Rob. Yeah, but all the Jews allowed the heir of Rav to do it. Because the problem is that we are rooted in Teva. We are rooted in the physical world. And, you know, even though you have uh, a divine vision, it, it, it still has to come through Teva, through natural means, you know, in terms of the mind and so on. So everybody, you always have a tendency to be skeptical. Because in the end, all we see is natural means, you know, nature, whatever you want to call it, and so on. So, you, you know, so you still have to have to be tochem. And it's not only the experience, but it's also what God says to do. You know, God can say to do something, and you, and you say to yourself, what? How can I do this? You know, the guy can say he's going to get killed. You know, it's like Nachshain. I mean, they all saw God, you see? And they all saw the Nisim. Yet only Nachshon jumped in. Why? Because you're looking at the sea, and everybody knows you're going to drown. You know, it's not simple to be talking. Because we are so immersed and rooted in physical world. You see? It's hard to let go. When you know if you let go, the normal consequence is death. I'm telling you, it's very hard to let go. What happens Even, in spiritual realms when you use your bitachon? Like, what's happening that changes the, the dimension of it? Of what's happening? Do you understand what I mean? No. What do you mean exactly? Okay. When you let's say something's happening to you, and then yeah. you you uh, you put input your bitachon in Hashem. And you surrender, and you do all the kavanah in your mind that you really, whatever's ha- happening, Hashem's doing it for my best. You even thank Hashem for it, whatever it is. You're doing all the work in bitachon that you have total surrender to it. Okay? Yeah. What is actually happening in the, the, the other realms as you do that? Like, what are you doing spiritually that we don't see? 
like that the physical eye doesn't see, but that's happening in the other realm? What happens is you get closer to God. The more you trust God, the greater is God connected to you in the sense that he allows you in some way to experience him or in the future to experience him. The vacus is increased by bitochen. The more bitochen you have, the more trust you have, the greater is God closer to you. The less you have, then the further God is from you. You see? So like let's so, say in some moments when I had when I did that, the Diviku, and then like I started tearing or crying from it. What yeah. is like you see how like that that like there's physical reactions to it. What is what is that exactly? Well, I mean that that would indicate that you seem to have a tendency to be close to God. There's something about you that is close to God on an emotional level, you know, which is a very great myla, very great uh, virtue. So your physical being can turn uh, or can connect to the spiritual and then uh, react? Yes. Yeah, the reaction will be where you can become more spiritual. But it's so the it like way opens, to get closer to God. It opens doors. Yes, it opens doors. It opens the door to the Shekhinah, to the Divine Presence. And it allows you to get close to the Divine Presence. Very close. You see? Yeah. It does. The Hakam Hashem doesn't let us have that always. Like, do you know what I mean? Like, it comes and goes. Because he doesn't want to disturb your free will. Because if you experience the reward or the outcome of a mitzvah, truly experience it, if you could, that is, it would disturb your free will. That's why angels cannot sin. But God wants us to be able to sin. That's why he gave us free will. And God is not going to take that away. Because then it disturbs the whole ability to get reward in the future world. To, you know, because you can only get it if you, have it free, if you freely do it. You have to earn it. You have to, you know, you have to merit. The only merit that you have is when you do it, you know, uh, freely. So there's only a certain amount that God will reveal himself. But he can't reveal himself totally, or else your free will will be disturbed. And God does not want to do that. That's only in the, for the angels. You see? By, by revealing, do you also mean that, like, a lot of the times when we do a mitzvah, we really don't know the repercussion of what's, happening in the upper world or what yes. is actually doing it for us, but that's what you mean by revealing? Yes. Yeah. So when Mashiach comes, we're going to learn what each mitzvah, uh, like what it, the effect of it had? Yes. Or, you will know, like I said last time, uh, you'll know everything. 
everything that happened to you, why it happened, you know, and so on, what the outcome was, that's when everything is revealed. And that's Mashiach ben David? That is Mashiach ben David, correct. Because remember, the main idea of Mashiach ben Yosef is to overcome evil. That's the fight. Like I said, the horns of the Ra'im. That's what he has to do. Mashiach ben Yosef is the one who has to turn over the whole world to realize uh, uh, God and so on, you know. And Mashiach ben David is the one who now uh, carries on the whole kingdom, you know, where it's now established. So basically, Mashiach ben Yosef has somewhat similar of a job to Abraham, where Abraham had to turn over his <coughs> world of monotheism and to believe in Hashem also. Yes, very similar jobs. That's right, very similar jobs. Right. You know, that's why that ram... Yeah, go ahead. No, I'm sorry, you go. I was going to say, that's why the ram by the Akedah was the ram of the Mashiach ben Yosef. Like I mentioned last time, the horns were ensnared because that's his weapons. And he took the Mashiach ben Yosef and he offered him up on the altar because it's only the suffering of the Mashiach ben Yosef, which I mentioned many times, that saves the Jews. So Avram Avinu is very similar to Mashiach ben Yosef. You know what I mean? Very similar jobs. Um, yeah. I have, a, I have a question. I have a question about the sparks of holiness, like where they are and if they're, like, are they in a, in different, like, let's say you're in a building, like, let's say you're in a big hospital. Do you remove them all over the place or do you have to be standing right there and you have to be like saying? No, that, it's not something, it's not, it, it's really based on a Kabbalistic event. Uh, which is a large topic in Kabbalah. It's called Shvir Sakalim, the breaking of the vessels, with a, with a lot of the energy of the spheres fell through a cracked vessel. It's a very important Kabbalistic event. But that's something that we see, but it is something that uh, is a, uh, a critical feature of the Tikkun, you see. So is, um, is anti-Semitism, like, is that removing sparks of holiness? <clears throat> no, sparks of holiness is that which the Sultan takes and that energizes him. And once he has all that energy, mm-hmm. he's able to project a force called the Zoyama that is able to control the physical world. You see, but the sparks right, but of we, holiness are the suffer, energy. What? But if we suffer from anti-Semitism, don't we get back the, the sparks of holiness? Yes. Yes. Every time Can a Jew suffer? suffers, every time a okay. Jew suffers, it depletes some aspect of the sudden. 
Is it yes. considered suffering when you just hear a story? If someone tells you something terrible and then you're really yes. like crying all over agon- Yeah, all anguish is suffering. Mm-hmm. All anguish is suffering, whether it be mental or physical. It's all suffering. 